Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. Sex scandals are ubiquitous in American politics. In compromising positions, sex scandals, politics, and American Christianity, Leslie Durrow-Smith examines the dynamics of political sex scandals and the rhetorical strategies employed by politicians that enable them to successfully withstand a public sex scandal. Through an examination of some of the most sensational sex scandals throughout the last several decades, Leslie Durrow-Smith demonstrates that sex scandals are about much more than sex. Leslie Duro-Smith is Associate Professor of Religious Studies and the Director of the Women's and Gender Studies Program at Avila University. Hi, Leslie, and welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Let's start by talking about the origins of this project. What made you want to examine political sex scandals? Um, That does seem an unlikely topic for an academic book in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Um, (laughs) I think part of it uh, was just the salacious nature of them and the fact that they can um, really take the public's interest and hold it in a way that few other topics can. Uh, One of the things that we know about sex scandals is that when they hit, they tend to really dominate um, uh, the media sphere. And so I, I was, I was intrigued by that dynamic, but I think the real reason behind my intrigue is that I, I generally, um, am very interested in an academic sense in moments of what some people call hypocrisy, but that I would tend to call normal social contradictions. And so I found sex scandals were a really interesting site where, um, there were sometimes enormous, and and usually this is what happens, enormous uh, contradictions that are going on where a a politician will say that, you know, that that he is an advocate only for the traditional heterosexual family. And then we find him, you know, engaged in, you know, a series of gay liaisons. Um, I was really interested in that dynamic because I think it is so much a part of, of kind of the typical American political process. And so, Having this interesting contradiction really spurred me on to to investigate what this dynamic was about a little bit more. Um, most of my research up to this point has also involved uh, the significance of sex in in, um, in both um, American culture, but also religions within American culture. So this seemed to be kind of a nexus of a lot of different things that I was already interested in looking at. So sex scandals are, as you say in the book, a constant thread in America's cultural fabric. Um, And it is is hard to think of any prominent politician who hasn't committed some sort of sexual indiscretion, whether that's um, an affair that gets publicized or being accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, What kinds of challenges did did the pervasiveness of sex scandals pose when you were writing the book? And how did you choose the scandals you examined since there are so many to choose from? Yeah, um, this was one of the things that really surprised me. You know, unlike other things that I've written, um, the enormous avalanche of data surrounding sex scandals was pretty stunning. I mean, I was not naive at all about, um, you know, about the fact that uh, a very large number of politicians um, either face allegations of some sort of sex scandal or um, have admitted even to to such liaisons. I mean, I, I wasn't naive about that, but I think one of the things that really struck me is that the moment that it got out, it just even in my in my casual social circles, and I'm not talking about academic uh, colleagues here, but you know the the parents of you know kids the age of mine, you know in in the car in the carpool pickup line, and you know at my exercise class, and once it cut out that I was, um, you know, doing a book about political sex scandals, I had people telling me information all the time that I never uh, that I never would have probably found on my own uh, just simply by virtue of their own personal interests and network. So um, dealing with that much data really was a, a prominent issue. And so what I was attempting to do in the book um, really helped me to, to shave down the number of, of case studies that I examined. And I should probably clarify that I was not attempting in the book to um, come up with 
um, a final um, statement on how sex scandals operate. And I, I was not attempting to create a crystal ball of what will happen, you know, if, if sex scandal X erupts with politician Y, that, w- that was not the goal. Rather, I was, I was really attempting to understand the dynamics that underscore a sex scandal, and particularly who ends up surviving a sex scandal and who doesn't, and what role um, American conservative uh, Christians, particularly evangelicals, what role evangelical rhetoric in particular might play in that process. So knowing those parameters really helped me to create a set of criteria that I used in, in paring down the data. And the first thing that I did was I was looking, I I looked only at male politicians. I didn't start off that way. I thought that there might be, at the outset of the research, I thought that there might be some interesting um, situations that might arise with female politicians. But what I found is that there were, and we already know this, statistically speaking, there aren't um, a ton of, of female politicians when compared to their male counterparts. But more than that, there are virtually no female politicians who have also been engaged in a public sex scandal, who also survived the process. So um, I end up coming with a th- uh, coming up with a theory about that in the book, um, and and the theory is basically the thesis of the book, which is that a certain type of hardcore aggressive masculinity, when that becomes a part of your your political reputation, that is protective in a sex scandal. And then in the book, I link that back to certain classically evangelical ways of thinking about both sex and gender. Um, but but to, to, to bring it back to the question, I, I first of all w- was looking at male politicians just because, um, like I said, there were not many female politicians uh, who were engaged in sex scandals, but also of those who were simply not many who survived. Um, the next criteria that I went with was that I was looking for someone whose sex scandal generated enough <clears throat> notoriety that there was a substantial national media response. So uh, there were a number of of sex scandals, for instance, that were taking place while I was writing the book, but they tended only to have perhaps more regional importance and they were not something, um, they were not um, generating a large degree of, of national commentary. And one of the reasons why I was really looking for national commentary is that I was just as interested in the media's role in portraying certain politicians, as I was in thinking through how the politicians themselves were attempting to spin their own their own PR problems, the third criteria that I was looking at was that I was I was looking only at candidates or politicians who had the sex scandal occur during their time in office or during their actual political campaigns. Campaigns. So, for instance. Um, at the same time that Mark Foley's sex scandal uh, was was hitting the news, um, we would find out that Dennis Hastert himself was in, had been engaged in in a sort of sex scandal, but it had been several decades before his time in office um, when he had been working um, as I think it was a high school or maybe like a, some sort of wrestling coach. So because the sex scandal did not occur during Hastert's time in office, he would not be someone who would be eligible for the project. Um, fourthly, I was looking for some, I was looking for sex scandals that were relatively recent. Um, part of my thesis, part of my argument was that there are some cultural dynamics that have happened in the U.S. really since the Reagan era that have substantially altered the way that we understand ourselves and our political leaders. And so I was wanting to focus on relatively recent sex scandals. And so I, the earliest ones that I start with um, in the 1990s, Ford are with Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill, and I move forward from there. Um, and then finally, I was looking to diversify the politicians um, in, in terms of their political allegiances. So I chose politicians from both sides of the aisle to analyze in the book. Um, there are trends that I mentioned in the book where conservatives tend to do better in surviving their sex scandal than, than more progressive candidates or more, pro, more more progressive politicians. But as I explain in the book, a lot of that has to do with the type of rhetoric that their um, that their base is, is willing to listen to and the type of rhetoric that their base finds persuasive. So uh, I mean, to, to, to put it quite simply, the, the hyper-aggressive, highly heterosexual, masculinized rhetoric that tends to be protective in a sex scandal appeals more to conservative audiences. So this could be why um, we will find that a lot of conservatives tend to weather 
their sex scandals quite successfully. On the other hand, um, being exposed as a gay man in the midst, you know, of let's say a contentious election year with a base that is uh, that is quite conservative could be damning in a way that it would not to a politician who has a more progressive base. So, so those were all things that I looked at. So. Those were the five criteria that I used, and even though I used those five, I was still uh, I was still confronted with an enormous amount of, of of sex scandal trivia. And so, after that point, my strategy was really attempting to find some common threads. So, in every uh, in most every chapter in the book, I pair up uh, at least two and sometimes three different politicians who have similar elements to their sex scandal, but whose fates turn out quite differently. And so after using those five criteria, like I said, I, I just spent time attempting to pair them up in ways that might give us some uh, some sort of more critical sense of as to why their sex scandal turned out the way in, in the way that it did. So, for instance, um, there is a chapter um, where I specifically address the topic of nationalism. And in that chapter, I look I compare Rudy Giuliani, Newt Gingrich and John Edwards and all three of those men have in common that they all had a presidential bid, and they all three also have in common um, a, a relatively lesser-known fact, which is that all three of them, <clears throat> excuse me, engaged in um, an illicit affair while they were married to a woman who was critically ill. And so I wanted to look at these different forces and see if uh, if the management of of their media personas. Um, differed based on again their political alignment, based on the type of rhetoric they used, but also based on the on the common situations in which they happen to find themselves. Um, another uh, kind of unlikely pairing, as I discuss in the epilogue, um, is the Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Christine Blasey Ford uh, scandal a, a, as it compares to that of Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. You know, what's the likelihood of having two female uh, professors who both come forward with allegations against a person who is, you know, undergoing hearings in order to become the next Supreme Court justice. So uh, there were lots of, of overlap and lots of commonalities that allowed me to have a really interesting and in a, in a lot of cases, really um, exciting base of data to work from, despite the fact that there was a ton of it. So we're going to get back to this rhetoric after we're in a, in a a question I have, um, I'm going to ask you a little bit later, but before we get to that, I'm, and I'm particularly intrigued by the Rudy Giuliani and John Edwards example that you brought up, and maybe we can unpack a particular example to see how that rhetoric works for some folks and how it it doesn't for others. Um, but before we get to that, um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more broadly about habitus, morals, and morality. Um, and you mentioned these terms, I think, in one of the earlier chapters, and I'm just wondering if you could unpack these these terms and what they have to do with sex and sex scandals. Yeah, sure. No, those are really, really important concepts in the book. Um, in fact, they are some of the most central ideas in, in terms of, of, of a common thread that unites a lot of what I'm trying to argue. So habitus is, the, is a concept uh, popularized by um, Pierre Bourdieu and and what Bourdieu was attempting to do was to come up with a theory that would explain why it is that so many of us um, feel like our preferences and our tastes and our, our attitudes, even our very thoughts, you know, we feel like they're very individual, like they're things that we came up with ourselves. And yet when we look around us, um, most of these preferences, attitudes and dispositions are things that, um, that our larger society embraces as well. So um, habitus is the is the name for how we individualize social cultural trends. And the reason why this is so critical for this book is that the attitudes that we tend to have in American culture, and this is attitudes, by the way, that are, that are popular in other cultures as well, but in American culture in particular, the attitudes that we have about gender and sex and race are so um, pervasive that we accept them as as our own dispositions or as our own moral stances and and yet never or I shouldn't say never we often do not investigate where these um, where these ideas come from and we often don't connect them to a lot of larger social forces uh, that that are going on in our culture. There's a term that I use throughout the book called male sexual management 
And that's really the connection that, that I try to make back to Habitus. And, and the overall argument is this, that in American culture, um, we have normalized for white men, for white straight men, I should note, we have normalized a type of contradiction regarding uh, their, both their masculinity and their sexuality. And the idea is that uh, men, white straight men are naturally aggressive, that they are, and they are natural protectors, um, and that they are naturally hypersexual. And so this is where we kind of get the boys will be boys uh, idea, the, um, you know, the ever pervasive, uh, you know, frat boy movie, <laughs> you know, any, any of these ideas that normalize uh, white male hypersexuality. You know, we tend to think that that's just a normal part of being a being male and white male in particular in our culture. On the other hand, uh, most of the ideals that we establish for white men and most of these ide- the ideals that we establish in particular for our political leaders um, has to do with the motif of the family man who um, operates not only as, as sort of an um, an, a national father figure, but also in many of his own PR um, uh, moments and many of his photo ops, will have his family featured there, or he will talk a lot about families, or or will will make other sorts of comments about, let's say, political issues such as marriage. So we've got really these two competing, and and in a lot of ways, totally contradictory ideas that we that we elevate when we're talking about white men. And one of them is that they are hypersexual, aggressive, um, and, and that this is really kind of a key and, and let's even admit kind of healthy part of their masculinity. And when I say admit there, I don't mean that I'm saying it is true. I'm saying that that is, that is, um, a very common cultural belief that, that this is just a normal part of how men operate. And on the other hand, we've got these ideals that are very much about family loyalty and that are about monogamy. And these two ideas are are really um, in contrast with each other. So the point that I try to make in the book regarding habitus is that our culture has inculcated within many of our thinking or within a lot of our thinking, a certain idea that both of these contradictions or these contradictory ideas can be held in the balance at the same time. And we often presume that it's white men who are doing that sort of, or who are performing that sort of balancing act. So what we end up seeing in a lot of marriage advice literature that's produced from more conservative circles, and this is uh, one of the one of the pieces of data that I feature in, in, in one of the earlier chapters, is we see a lot of focus put on women and how they can manage their husbands and manage their boyfriends in such a way that they can not only, um, you know, snag a husband or snag a mate, but after that, how they can make them, and it's usually sexually happy to the degree that they can get them to commit. So a lot of uh, conservative sources spend considerable time talking to audiences, uh, to, to, to presumably white female conservative audiences, about the things that one must do in order to snag a guy and then to keep him. And a lot of this has to do with keeping him sexually happy. So the reason I wanted to really highlight this more conservative element of, of gender and sexuality was because it absolutely revolves around this idea that, again, doesn't make much sense from, from a consistency standpoint, you know, that men are hypersexual and at the same time, you know, completely monogamous. Um, but this is nevertheless an idea that we find um, quite, you know, quite uh, rampantly throughout a lot of conservative and even just if we wanted to call them more traditional circles. So we can't really understand how sex scandals work unless we can acknowledge that that particular contradictory motif about <clears throat> both men and women and about race and about sexuality are a pretty critical part of, of how we regard each other and about the expectations socially that we have of each other. The reason why that matters is that the argument that I make in the, in the larger in the larger book is that To a great degree, we tolerate a lot of politicians' sex scandals, even though, by the way, Americans say that they absolutely hate sex scandals. They they, um, are, you know, categorically against adultery. And yet we tolerate a lot of these because we have these very contradictory ideas that we've got that we're juggling around. And so um, my my broader argument is that in a lot of cases, we wish or we are willing to tolerate a politician's, uh, let's say, bad sexual behavior, um, his misdeeds and missteps, if, on the other hand, he can reinforce certain other values that we find desirable. So that's the reason why habitus really matters here. It's it's helping to expose 
certain contradictory ideas that we have about morality and specifically sexual morality and who gets to have the um, ability to live out that double standard. And for the many white male politicians who are also straight and have this sort of family man demeanor, these are often the ones who we find uh, being caught in sex scandals. And they're also the ones who are more likely to recover so long as they can also respond in kind with this more hyper-aggressive masculine language. So early on in the book, you present three different models of sex scandals. I'm wondering if you could explain these models and their connection, even though you you kind of alluded to this already a little bit, but and their connection to conservative Christian understandings of morality and sex. Yeah, yeah. So what I was attempting to do here is to wrap my own brain around what a scandal is, but also to provide the reader with some context as to why it is that we tend to think of scandals in one way. When it looks like, you know, from from a, if we do kind of a, a more critical deep dive, scandals actually operate in a, in, a, in a much different way. So most of us, I think, and I, I myself did before I really started my research for the project, most of us think of scandals um, according to what I first call the individualist model. And the individualist model is simply the idea that a sex scandal is an act performed by... Um, you know, a person with poor sexual ethics who happens to be a politician and that this matters because it damages the public trust. So that's probably the simplest, most straightforward way and probably almost also the, the most popular way that sex scandals are understood. I go through kind of the contours of that model and what it looks like in the book, but I ultimately reject that model as a critical frame for my research. And the reason why is that we have a number of, of instances of sex scandals that occur, or I should, I should not even call them scandals. We have a number of illicit sexual relationships that hit the press that never result in a scandal. So uh, knowing that someone has engaged in illicit sex does not necessarily generate a, a scandal. Also, as the case of you know, the very famous cases of, let's say, Donald Trump show us, it is entirely possible that the public can be aware of someone's illicit sexual relationships and absolutely turn, to, turn a blind eye. So the individualist model claims that the reason why a sex scandal is worth talking about in the public sphere is because it damages the public trust. And again, as I got further and further into my research, I, I didn't really find a lot of evidence that, uh, A, um, the public necessarily felt like it had incurred some sort of, of, of damage or trauma. And B, there were a lot of indications uh, that, in fact, the, the dynamics that were going on weren't actually so individual, that they are, that they are actually much more a part and parcel of, of male um, power. And so that was the, the, one of the reasons why I, I really rejected that model. The second model that we see occur uh, or embraced really much more in, in scholarship is what I call the institutional model. And the institutional model is looking more at how sex scandals can reveal the cultural norms that might be violated, how sex scandals um, involve a lot of privileges and prejudices and biases and double standards. So I use the institutional model to a great degree um, as I am looking through the various cases. And and I would agree with those who have used this institutional model that sex scandals do reveal a lot of double standards. Um, As I mentioned earlier, if you are a a purportedly white straight male caught in um, a gay relationship then chances are much worse that you're not going to survive the, you know, your scandal. Whereas if you're um, a white straight male who is engaged in an affair with another woman, uh, an ongoing affair, your chances are different than if you are engaged in you know, a one night stand with a prostitute or something like this. So all of the different ways that these um, characteristics played out had a lot to do with the social norms that we embrace. For instance, here is... Um, and this totally falls into the category of TMI, but it's in the book. So I'll, I'll list it here. Um, if you are uh, if, if you are a politician uh, and you are a white uh, straight male politician, and if you are caught in some sort of sexual liaison that does not involve physical touching. So uh, it involves perhaps sending illicit text messages or it involves... Uh, watching porn, or it involves hiring a prostitute who you watch instead of touching uh, her directly. 
your fate tends to be far worse than a politician who engages in a sexual liaison where there is actual physical contact. That seems to be absolutely bonkers from a lot of perspectives, right? That, that seems like, you know, it wouldn't make any sense because many of us have this idea, this mental hierarchy of sexual misdeeds that say that touching someone in an illicit relationship is worse than perhaps, you know, exchanging, you know, uh, virtual messages or something like this. But one of the things that the institutional model allows us to see is that the public, and particularly things like um, uh, political cartoons or late night, uh, you know, uh, TV shows, tend to make more fun of politicians who never actually, quote unquote, do the deed. And so this ends up demasculinizing many of these men. And if you get demasculinized in a sex scandal, you are much more likely to either, you know, uh, to lose your office or to be forced to resign or to fail to win your political bid or whatever it is. So the institutional model was very helpful in the research that I did. But I wanted to push it further because I saw a lot of different dynamics that were going on that I really hadn't seen other scholars discuss. And I should mention that that there is uh, there is some literature that's out there about political sex scandals, but it is not um, a wide body of literature. And a lot of it also comes primarily from political scientists and some communications and media folks. So um, obviously all of our disciplinary perspectives are different. And so this means that, um, you know, we're all kind of approaching these topics with a different set of questions in mind. And my questions as a person who's interested in evangelicalism and Christian nationalism, my questions were, were much more about the nexus of religion and, um, and patriotism and, and, and notions of, of Christian nationalism. So in the book, I pose a third model, which I call the nationalist model. And after doing my research, what I discovered was that sex scandals in the American context, at least, are very much about how Americans understand the nation. And in this third model, I propose a series of, of uh, let's call them theoretical platforms that we can use to think through more critically how a sex scandal operates. Um, in the chapter where I discuss both nationalism and then later on media, what I uh, demonstrate is that if you want to understand how the American public itself thinks about a sex scandal, then you have to first understand how the American public thinks about America as a concept. And so again, back to this main idea that we're quite willing to overlook any number of, of, of sexual uh, liaisons so long as we are represented by a politician who is known for a hyper-aggressive displays of, of white straight masculinity. And so long as this person makes America look strong and makes us uh, look like, you know, that there's, you know, that we are, you know, bastions of freedom and things like this, that those were really powerful forces in helping a politician survive his own sex scandal. So I added this third model to my overall framework because I wanted to point out that this is not just about, um, sex scandals are not just about uncovering certain types of cultural um, norms and not just about privileges and prejudices, but they also are driven by and feed into very specific nationalist rhetorics. And so what that ultimately means is that um, the, public the public's response to a sex scandal has a lot to do with how they understand um, American citizenship in a way that I don't think that I anticipated whenever I first began this research. I'm wondering if we can dive into... Um looking at maybe a, a particular example that shows how one, um, how this rhetoric of hypermasculinity works to protect someone from a sex scandal. You mentioned a few examples before, Rudy Giuliani, um, John Edwards, um, et cetera. So I'm wondering if we could maybe take an example, unpack it to see how this dynamic um, really works. Yeah, you bet. So that chapter is a really good example. And then um, Maybe we can also wander into the territory of Anthony Weiner and Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is a pairing that I have in the chapter that focuses on media. And that is a, a very interesting and at times highly comical and at times really depressing <laughs> chapter yeah. too. Okay, so um, in the chapter where I discuss nationalism, the examples that I use there do include, as you just mentioned, um, uh, Rudy Giuliani, John Edwards, and Newt Gingrich. And um, 
The reason why I wanted to compare those three politicians in, in particular was because, as I mentioned earlier, all of them had had presidential bids. Um, all of them were were national figures. Um, you know, everyone knows their names. Um, all of them, as I mentioned earlier, also had wives who were critically ill during uh, or immediately. Well, during their affair or in the case of Giuliani, um, there there is some question. But anyway, we, we are dealing with a scenario where there is a medical issue and where there are also a number of other forces going on. And we are also talking about three men who had presidential bids. Um, the reason why I, I was interested in the health component um, is that there are are some there are some interesting allegations that that um, Newt, Gring, Newt Gingrich's first wife that he told her that he wanted a divorce while she was lying in her hospital bed sick with cancer, and the reason why he wanted that was because he had started an affair with someone else. Um, as we know, John Edwards conducted his affair um, while his uh, quite famous in her own right wife Elizabeth was also ill with breast cancer. Um, as we know, Elizabeth Edwards uh, would ultimately die of breast cancer a few years back. But one of the reasons why in some cases or some some scenarios or some, sorry, some analysts will say that John Edwards did not fare particularly well was because uh, he looked like the ultimate, um, uh, you know, worst husband ever. He uh, was having an affair at the time that his wife was critically ill. The reason I wanted to point that out, though, is because Gingrich was also doing the same thing. And the difference between Gingrich and Edwards, politically speaking, um, can really shed some light, I think, on on why and how each of them fared in the way that they did. So, to to make sure that we're that that we have kind of our political alliances clear, uh, Giuliani and Gingrich are both Republicans. I, I would say Giuliani has, or at least in the past, was uh, a fairly non traditional Republican. Um, although it's it's a little unclear now what exactly <laughs> what sort of Republican Giuliani is at the moment, um, but but Edwards uh, was a, uh, is a Democrat who was uh, you know campaigning on some on some pretty classically liberal platforms and particularly was well known for his uh, concern with poverty. So here we have a guy John Edwards who is known for his good looks. In fact, it's extremely difficult to find a news story or any sort of deep dive analysis about John Edwards that does not mention his looks. And that's a really important key feature because you don't find that with Giuliani and Gingrich. So we've got a guy who is traditionally good looking and most journalists who report about him feel the need to bring that up. Um, in fact, the term pretty boy gets used a lot in the media coverage about him. We also find out that he, uh, in, in terms of his political advocacy, he's very concerned about the poor, about the underprivileged, about those who historically don't have much of a voice. And then we have the story of his affair and um, in, in what is often considered a more scandalous turn, uh, the affair that resulted um, in, in a pregnancy and a, and a child with, uh, with his now former lover. So all of this is happening and the backdrop of his, of his wife's illness um, cast him in, in what is perhaps the most negative light possible in the midst of a sex scandal. He is seen as a poor father. Um, he is seen as a poor husband. He is seen primarily as a person who is in a lot of ways feminized. His looks are a constant feature of the reporting about him. Uh, you might remember that at, you know, at some point we're, we're seeing news stories that talk about how much his, hair costs, his haircuts cost. And we also, at the same time, he does not have any political rhetoric, let's say, to fight back with um, that posits, uh, you know, a, uh, a scary national enemy out there that he's going to defend us against. And when I say us, I mean, you know, kind of the American people. What we end up seeing from John Edwards then is a guy who in almost every way has almost every aspect of his uh, straight white masculinity undercut. He's seen as a guy who cares too much about his looks. He's a bad dad. He's a bad husband. Um, he's he's not politically able to uh, to talk about a, a strong America, able to defend itself from you know from whatever boogeyman du jour is out there. And so that's a very important thing to note because what ends up happening is that the two other um, 
the two other politicians who I feature in this chapter, while they are both guilty of, if, if we look at kind of their sexual histories that we know about, I mean, they are guilty of extraordinary levels of, of sexual indiscretion uh, when compared to Edwards, but they had at hand certain tools, rhetorically speaking, that really saved them. So even though, uh, you know, we know in particular Gingrich's wife was struggling with, uh, his first wife was struggling with cancer. I believe it was also his second wife who had MS um, and who uh, so, so was dealing with chronic disease. I, I might have mixed that up with one of Giuliani's wives. But um, we know that Gingrich is in a similar scenario. But keep in mind a couple of things about both Gingrich and Giuliani. Um, neither one of them is understood as a traditionally um, good looking man. And so even though one would think that that would work in one's favor politically, they were not subject to the same analysis of, again, the same pretty boy comments in the media. Both of them had their careers defined by standing against what they portrayed to be enemies against the American public. And this, in, in, in my analysis, is probably one of the strongest features that they had working in their favor. Gingrich was responsible uh, for much of the legislation um, in much of the contract with America during the 1990s in the Clinton era that created and, and really legally instantiated the sense that poor Americans and poor Americans of color in particular were the internal American enemy. And so a lot of the conversation that he was, uh, a lot of the rhetoric in which he was bartering during this time period about the instability of families and about, uh, you know, a, a kind of the connection between um, a lack of marriage and poverty and, and a number of other kind of classic conservative talking points. He was saying all of this stuff at the same time that he was conducting multiple affairs. But what is fascinating is that, of course, if he could come off, and this is why I say I, I really love to study contradiction, if he can come off to the American public, and here we're talking now, you know, uh, prominently about the white American public as a guy who was protecting them from kind of the seedy underbelly of, of you know, the, the American poor and, 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 you know, and Americans of color, then he has just garnered a huge rhetorical weapon in his favor. And that is, uh, to a great degree, uh, the, the enemy that he was able to pose on the horizon that I think made him so influential. Now, Rudy Giuliani is a much more obvious um, um, example of, of an enemy and a crisis. Uh, obviously, he was mayor of New York um, during 9-11. And um, I mentioned in the book that Joe Biden has um, in the past, uh, jokingly, kind of, um, <laughs> he has, he has uh, let's say, passive aggressively made the remark that, you know, that anytime um, Rudy Giuliani talks, that all he has to say is a noun and a verb and 9-11, um, because it has been a defining hallmark of, of his persona. So, the backstory behind his own uh, his own sexual liaisons, though, is really uh, quite colorful and sad at the same time. Um, he is known to many New Yorkers for announcing his divorce from his wife in a press conference before telling her about it. And she heard about it on TV and then later uh, that same day um, held her own press conference, you know, citing the, the dissolution of their marriage as the result of his his chronic philandering. So. If you look at, at old, you know, at older, um, you know, editions of the New York Times and even other, even some other publications, you can find endless stories about the drama that was spilling out from Gracie Mansion as Giuliani uh, made a number of of really terrible mistakes from a relational perspective, um, and then as he would establish a new relationship, and then as that relationship would erode, and and uh, th this was all over the papers. It was absolutely not a secret to anyone. And it appears that he also handled it in the absolute worst way possible. So that there should not have been any way, let's say, that the public paying attention to this, uh, this media would have understood him as an upstanding family man. That, that's, that's really kind of the point to make is that, that the, the missteps were so profound that um, you know, you don't, I don't know how you forget to tell your wife that you're announcing your impending divorce, you know, in, in a, in a, you know, a press conference. But once 9-11 happened in the months following this, you know, his divorce announcement, once 9-11 happened, um, and once there was, you know, this profound readjustment by the American public, 
of its own sense of worth, worth and our place in the world. And once all of these things went down, you know, Rudy Giuliani became the American icon. You know, th- th- there's a reason why, you know, he was dubbed America's mayor. And all of his relational missteps after that simply melted away uh, in a way that they almost certainly would not have had 9-11 not happened and had we not had you know, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, um, such convenient but also pressing enemies, you know, in, in, in that era where the fear over terrorism and the fear over outsiders attempting to attack us because of our freedoms, and I, I say that in quotation marks, um, when that rhetoric was so very strong. So that's, you know, holding those three in comparison, I think, provides a really good example of, of some of the dynamics that I'm, I was attempting to unpack because, um, you know, like I said, a couple of them have in common, you know, uh, a critically ill wives while an affair is going on. All three of them have a presidential bid. A couple of, of the other of them are, uh, are named uh, Time Magazine's Man of the Year. You know, these are prominent people. And although they have some pretty substantial overlaps in the way that their own sexual liaisons and missteps go, um, their fates ended up uh, in a very different place. So you mentioned earlier that you examine um, male politicians primarily, but there are a a few cases you bring up that involve women. So I'm thinking particularly about Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas and Paula Jones and Bill Clinton. And I bring this up because I wonder if we can use that example to talk a little bit about race and how... And yeah, and how and how race comes into play um, in these in using these two ex- case study examples. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good question. I, I was concerned at the outset when it began to become clear that I did not have any sort of um, data set of female politicians who had engaged in a sex scandal. Like when they, they just didn't really exist. I became concerned that that we were not hearing the voices of the women who were involved in many of these scandals, because one of the things that's that's really remarkably clear in a sex scandal is that um, when there is, for instance, um, when a sex scandal happens and there's a case of prostitution, um, the people who tend to incur legal, penalty, legal penalties in a sex scandal, it, it, the people are, are rarely the politicians themselves. So usually the person who tends to go to jail will be, you know, the madam who, you know, runs, uh, uh, you know, kind of a prostitution network, or we will see prostitutes themselves, or we will see people who are aides or others who are knowledgeable of the politician's um, missteps. But but the politician himself is 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 rarely one who who receives any sort of official sanction. So knowing this, I wanted to investigate a little bit further what it meant um, not just to be gendered, but also raced in this environment, because the, the theme of the book is really that it, it is it is simply a, a, a raced and gendered book in that way, that uh, white, straight heteromasculinity and, and the aggressive version of it in, in particular is really key to surviving a sex scandal. But it's also a pretty key marker of a lot of politicians themselves, whether or not they engage in a sex scandal. In other words, as a culture, we associate that with political leadership. I was curious to see what would happen when two women who both were not, were not consenting partners in a sex scandal, two women who, um, in, in fact, um, made charges or allegations of victimization. I wanted to, to look at what had happened to them um, when they came forward to make uh, what in most cases uh, had been, you know, substantial and legitimate charges. So in one chapter, I compare Anita Hill and Paula Jones, and then the comparison of race is a little bit more prominent in the final chapter where I compare um, Clarence Thomas and the, and the Anita Hill case with the uh, uh, Kavanaugh and uh, Christine Blasey Ford case, because in that particular chapter, we have two very parallel uh, scenarios unfolding, but the treatment that both Hill and Thomas received and the way that the media described them was actually quite different than the treatment that Kavanaugh and Ford experienced. So I'll, I'll mention that in a moment. But let me let me speak first about Anita Hill and Paula Jones. Um, the chapter that I wrote about them is subtitled The Story of Feminists and Whores, because I wanted to show how the media and how other politicos had described both of the women at various points in their testimony. 
in the case of both of these women, even though they come from very different backgrounds and they're talking about very different allegations, um, they are standing up in a very public way to two very powerful men. And um, both of them were marginalized in a way that had to do with ideas about improper sexuality. Anita Hill was discredited um, in very infamously um, writer uh, and then conservative activist, now turned liberal activist, David Brock wrote um, a book that's still available for sale called The Real Anita Hill. Um, He now admits that almost all of it was fabricated. But in the book, he describes Anita Hill as a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty. And that's the, the phrase that he uses. And so what is interesting about Hill is to watch, again, for both the perspective of the media and then the other politicians who were a part of the, the Clarence Thomas testimony, is to watch the back and forth to see how she was portrayed. And it's quite clear that a lot of this has to do with tensions over uh, wanting to believe Clarence Thomas, not wanting to uh, seem like uh, many of these politicians were, you know, they, they would discuss then and later were concerned about rejecting Clarence Thomas on, you know, on claims of his hypersexuality. They were aware um, of, of the, the, the large degree to which black men are often associated with, with hypersexuality as a type of danger. And, you know, Thomas himself comes out and makes the, the comment that, um, that Hill's claims were an attempt to, to reinforce that, that motif of the bad hypersexual black man. So he accuses a black woman of using that racist um, and sexist motif against him. Hill was then caught in a, in a really um, impossible bind. Uh, she describes what she um, believes to be um, a, a case of clear sexual harassment Uh, she, uh, describes in great detail what happened. As we now know, other women had experienced something similar with Clarence Thomas, although they were not highlighted in the same way Anita Hill was at the time. But what is really interesting is that Hill flip-flops or the, the, sorry, the reception of Hill flip-flops back and forth again between the feminist and the whore motif. So on the one hand, um, there are politicians who claim that she was obsessed, um, with Clarence Thomas uh, they call her an erotomaniac, which is, I, I don't even know if that's a real thing, but they describe her as, as a woman who was so sexually obsessed with Clarence Thomas that she invented this entire sexual backstory that he was attempting to woo her when really he wasn't. Um, and so that's the piece of David Brock's uh, argument that, that, you know, kind of the little bit slutty. Brock also makes up this side story that she herself could not stop talking about her own sexual interests with her friends. And so that plays into kind of the, the hypersexuality often associated with black women. On the other hand, though, Hill also from the other side was being um, hit with allegations that she was an uptight feminist who simply didn't know how to take uh, a joke from a guy who meant well. And uh, she has even recounted uh, in in some of her own, um, um, in her memoirs and in some of her own uh, reflections on this period in time that she had politicians leaving messages on her answering machine at home, telling her that she just needed to loosen up, that this is just, you know, it's just guy talk. It's the boys will be boys practice again. And that that she was taking it all too seriously. So, you know, talk about being caught in a catch-22, right? On the one hand, if it when she came forward with these allegations, you know, uh, a, a number of politicians said that she was obsessed with Thomas and the others said that she that that she was simply um, taking it all too seriously. In the case of, of Paula Jones, we have similar types of rhetorics, although they work in a different way. Now, Paula Jones is never accused of being an uptight feminist, but she does find herself in another impossible catch 22. So Paula Jones um, is the person, uh, for those who, who don't remember their Bill Clinton sex scandal uh, and the Monica Lewinsky um, outline, um, she's one of the people who comes forward and provides testimony that spurs on the Monica Lewinsky case. And um, she claimed that Clinton um, and some of Clinton's um, people had approached her um, in her hotel room when they both happened to be in the same Arkansas hotel. She was there as a state employee um, working a conference. And her claims were that Clinton exposed himself to her and that she uh, uh, was shocked and uh, did not engage in any sort of sexual relationship with him. 
Um, and Clinton continues to deny those allegations, by the way, even though he did go on to admit the allegations regarding Monica Lewinsky. So at first, as you can imagine, conservatives, uh, and, and this is, you know, during the Clinton era while he's in the presidency, um, conservatives rallied behind Paula Jones and they used a lot of, of feminist language, in fact, to support her. And they talked um, at, at great length to, to the degree that they never had before during that era um, about how important it was that men did not sexually harass women and how important it was that women were able to work um, in an environment free of sexism and, um, and other uh, forms of, of, of sexist bias and prejudice. But then, not too long into this scandal, um, some nude photos of, of Paula Jones are leaked to the press. And uh, they, in, in, in fact, and it, it, it's more specific than just the press, they, get, they get, uh, make their way over to Penthouse Magazine. And so she is uh, really frantic. She does not want these photos to be published. Um, she doesn't feel that there's a way that she can um, um, at all avoid that. And she is, if I remember correctly, even attempting to take um, legal action to make sure that that these um, that these particular uh, photos aren't released. And I, I think if I remember the story correctly, that it was a former boyfriend or someone who had, you know, who had leaked the photos. All of those things aside, what is really interesting is that the minute that, that, that she is understood as, um, that she is understood as a sexual character in her own right, uh, many of the conservatives who supported her uh, drop her immediately. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I can't remember if it was Hustler or Penthouse. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that it matters in the moment, but but you know, for the sake of accuracy, um, it was one of those publications. So they, th this magazine known for its pornography, gets the photos. She takes you know great lengths, or she goes to great lengths to attempt to stop it, and and she is unsuccessful. So what happens is that many of the conservative forces who had represented her both legally and also kind of from a more PR perspective begin to use uh, terms like white trash to talk about her. And they begin to uh, uh, not only uh, do they invoke this, but they uh, begin to say things like, we thought you were a good Christian girl and now we can no longer support you. So her entire defense uh, crumbles once it's clear that she, even though, you know, again, these pictures have nothing to do with her allegations against Bill Clinton. Um, and as I mentioned in the book, it, it is, you know, it is the height of victim blaming to claim that because a woman is, is sexual, that she also cannot have been victimized. But this is indeed what happened. And so this contrast between what at one point had been seen as her sort of white upstanding good girl persona when she was speaking out against Clinton eroded. And she becomes, uh, again, as, as, uh, as conservative Ann Coulter describes her, uh, she becomes trailer park trash. And uh, again, white poverty figures heavily here in, in a lot of those, in a, a lot of the, the rhetoric that was used to describe her once she was no longer a politically tenable character for conservatives. But perhaps some of the most uh, startling parallels as it pertains to race are, are things that I explore in the last chapter when, as I mentioned, I look at the case of, of Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh and compare it to the earlier testimony that existed between Hill and Thomas. And one of the things that I point out in that last chapter which is really one of the more stunning uh, remarks that, uh, made by both the media and by other politicians and just by the public in general, is that back in the 1990s, when the Thomas and Hill case was, well, you know, was being, uh, you know, monitored ever so closely, virtually all media outlets were making the comment that uh, they were saying things like, "Well, one of them must be lying," um, and so the rhetoric of deception was really heavy during the Hill and Thomas testimony. Fast forward a few decades and we get to the Kavanaugh Blasey Ford testimony. Well, you know, one could say here that, you know, so someone has to be lying, but that is actually not at all uh, the frame that the media nor uh, uh, our politicians use to describe them. In fact, um, Ford and Kavanaugh are both seen as two sort of unwitting teenagers who, uh, in the case of Ford, 
must have forgotten what happened or in the case of, you know, Kavanaugh might have blacked out, um, you know, due to drinking. And so they are they are both absolved of of responsibility, let's say, morally speaking, in their testimony in a way that uh, Hill and Thomas were not. So, again, the frame of deception was really thick from both a media and political perspective during the Hill Thomas testimonies. Um, and the frame of forgetfulness or kind of youthful, um, you know, youthful vigor or, you know, or, you know, just kind of like being a silly adolescent, uh, that was used far more often to dismiss both the testimony and the behaviors of, um, of Kavanaugh and Blasey Ford. Um, so we're reaching the end. I have two final questions for you, uh, before we, before we conclude, um, and this, my question that I have for you right now, you've answered um, at various points throughout the interview, but I want to maybe um, ask it a little bit more directly. Um, you make the argument in the book that sex scandals are about something other than sex. So what are sex scandals really about? Yeah. Um, sex scandals are about uh, defining the ideal American citizen. Um, to put it bluntly, uh, sex scandals show us in an ethical quandary, uh, who we're willing to side with. And that tells us a lot about the way that we evaluate um, who matters, the, the, whose, uh, whose persona will, will be presented as ideal, whose testimony will be, will be believed. And so this is why um, I say continuously throughout the book that sex scandals are only tangentially about sex. Sex just happens to be the mechanism through which these conversations come to the fore. Um, and my final question for you is, um, what are you working on now? So, well, I, I'm at the moment I am, um, working on a textbook. Uh, this is, uh, something that is, is new to me, but I'm, I'm really excited about it because, uh, I've, I've long as a person who teaches world religions courses and many of us who teach them know that they can be quite tough to teach. Um, no one is ever a subject expert in all of the different arenas that you cover in a world religions course. And at the same time, um, a lot of uh, these courses um, can end up just being very descriptive where we you know, talk about this religion and this region and what they believe and what they do. And then we kind of move on to the next one. So I'm working with my colleague, Stephen Ramey out of the University of Alabama on a textbook that approaches the major religious traditions from a more sociological and functionalist perspective. And our goal with the textbook is to teach students how to th uh, think critically from a more socio-critical frame about the ways that we describe religion and about the various um, angles that are used to describe a particular religion, who, which, which parties um, within a religion tend to describe it in such and such a way, what are the politics behind these descriptions, and how do these descriptions change over time? So this textbook, um, which hopefully will be out in the next couple of years, um, maybe I should be more optimistic, hopefully out in the next year. That's probably a little optimistic. <laughs> um, this textbook is really attempting to, uh, to shed light on the cultural politics that exist behind the religious labels that we use and to teach about the world religions um, from, from that perspective. As far as uh, kind of new monographs go, though, I think my next project is going to be about evangelicals um, and, and and maybe we should say the pro-life movement more generally and guns. Um, I've been batting that around my head for a while and I'm really back to this, uh, you know, case of contradiction and back to my my intrigue with things like moral outrage and, and polarizing political movements. Um, I have for a long time been intrigued with the dynamics of, um, of how many folks uh, claim a pro-life identity and at the same time are so resistant to gun control. And um, I suspect that a lot of that has to do with some of the forces that I discuss in compromising positions, which is kind of the, the ways in which we highlight and idealize uh, white, straight, masculine aggression. So I, I think that might be um, on the near horizon. And that's a project I hope to dive into soon and, and to see what happens there. Well, that sounds really interesting. I'll have to keep my eye out for that. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about your book, especially during uh, these strange times that we're living in. Um, it was a pleasure reading and talking to you about your book, Compromising Positions, Sex Scandals, Politics, and American Christianity is out now. Thank you.